Last week we covered the fifth major point on how Christianity is oftentimes misused as just a means to an end. Uh, this, we see this today on both sides of the spectrum. So we, we don't want to make it just a liberal thing. It's only liberals who do this. Conservatives can do this too. And conservatives have done this, using Christianity as a means to an end. And there's dangers there. And um, the big quote that I quoted uh, emphasized um, the words in order to, right? Christianity will be lost if we accept Christianity in order to fill in the blank, right? Uh, there are conservative Christians who believe in a prosperity gospel, right? The prosperity gospel is very old, by the way. Uh, unfortunately, there were some little seeds of it even during um, the Reformation, among some of the reformers even, that now we look back and say we can correct that, uh, looking in hindsight and having uh, a better understanding. Not, with, not that we thumb our nose down on, on the reformers at all. Um, they are still our heroes and heroes of the faith, but we, we also want to point out where they got things wrong. Okay. Um, and we saw a little bit of the prosperity gospel even today that if the nation accepts Christianity, then things will go better. We'll have a better society. Um, there's a danger with that because you could be using Christianity as just a tool in the toolbox and then put it away when you're done. Okay, uh, That's not what Christianity is for. As we heard in the message this morning, Christianity is for the glory of God and the worship of God. Um, and we want to see people transformed to worship God, not just to make things better, right? Not just to make society better, not just to make life better. That's the prosperity gospel. That's the social gospel. Notice the prosperity and social gospel are both on the left and on the right. They're there. It's present. And we need to be careful. Um, so uh, today, moving from uh, misusing Christianity as a means to an end, he moves from that to encouraging Christians to become more heavenly-minded when it comes to Christianity. What is Christianity about? Uh, it's not, as I said in the message, it's not a man-made message. It comes, it's a divine revelation of God and his saving work from heaven to us. So our minds ought to be directed toward heaven, even when we're doing our earthly duties and our earthly works. Uh, heavenly mindedness is lacking in many churches, even conservative churches today. There are, like I said, various versions of the social gospel controlling the Christian narrative today. When we think of the social gospel, we normally associate the social gospel along political lines like socialism, communism in the pulpit. That's how the social gospel really started in America, right? In the 50s, 60s, you, you had the civil rights movement going on, and you had ministers who went from preaching the gospel to preaching politics, right? Uh, preaching political justice and all this other stuff. Um, that's how we normally think of uh, the social gospel. It's the civil rights movement or even political liberalism. I told you about that church uh, down in Providence, uh, that it was a church, there was you know, hymns being sung, but 
Who led the worship? Who was preaching? It was the local government officials, right? That's like a communist China, right? Um, we don't want that. that. That's not what we want in the church. But the social gospel can be found in even classically reformed and conservative circles. Say, for instance, Christian nationalism, right? Christian nationalism is a form of the social gospel. It is. Let's not beat around the bush. Um, there's, a, there's a good book out there. His name is, I believe his name is John Coffey. And he wrote a book, and you could correct me if I'm wrong. And it talks about the social gospel, even going back to John Calvin. And some of his sermons, if you put them, uh, if you put John Calvin, whatever he's preaching on, when he preaches on the nation, and put them side by side to a lot of the social gospel ministers, they're very similar. Very similar. Sometimes even word for word. To me, that was kind of eye-opening. If you have a chance, look, look up that uh, book. He, he, he's written a lot on the uh, Reformed history in, overseas and in America. Uh, so specifically in America, but he's also written on the history of the Reformed Church and some of the things we should learn uh, from our history that we shouldn't repeat, right? In every history, there are things we shouldn't repeat, right? Um, but back to Christian nationalism. Uh, when I talk about Christian nationalism, people mis may misinterpret that to mean we shouldn't be patriotic. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, patriotism is a good thing. Patriotism is, a, is Christian. It's showing love for our neighbors and our country. That's a good thing. Nationalism is something completely different. Nationalism is when we love our country to the point where we would destroy other nations or other people groups for the sake of the nation. That's Nazi Germany, right? They would destroy all others for the sake of their nation. That's nationalism, okay? Um, and any time that Christians went that direction to accept nationalism, they went the opposite direction that she should have been going in. Because Machen identifies here what the social gospel is. The social gospel is when the preacher preaches not just to rescue individual souls from eternal damnation, but also when he preaches seeking to transform the whole organism of society. It is when the gospel becomes social or when Christianity is used as a means to transform society, a means to an end. But if you read the New Testament, nowhere in the New Testament is there any call on the Christian to impose Christianity on the broader society. If anything, if we read 1 Corinthians 10, it's the opposite, right? We are to proclaim and persuade and never stop preaching the gospel, even if preaching becomes illegal. Now, some will argue from the Great Commission that we are to disciple the nations, but that text is not speaking about nation states, but different groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And where does discipling take place? In the state? No, in the church. Uh, at this time, you know, after the Great Commission, we know the nation of Israel will crumble. 70 AD, the Jews will be dispersed, 
And with the Jews, the church will also be dispersed. This is very providential, right, when we look at history. The church, Christians will be dispersed across all nations, and they would have to learn to live in pagan nations. And the way they do that is pretty much they preach the gospel and mind their business. That's how they lived for 300 years in the early church until uh, Christianity became a state religion, not under Constantine, but the guy after him, I, I forget his name, maybe Theodosius, I, it's slipping my mind. But not until then did Christianity become a, a state religion, but before that, that wasn't even a concern for the Christian. You, you can read all the early church, they weren't even that concerned. They were worried about how we relate to the state and uh, the state should give us freedom that's what we want. We want freedom and to leave us alone. We're not here to impose anything on them. Give us freedom to exist and then leave us alone. Um, and through, in, in the church, through the ordinary means or the ordained means of grace, uh, this is how the word of God comes to people, saves them, transforms them. And then from there, you'll notice that society is better because there are Christians living in it. But without the means of grace, without the word of God being proclaimed, you don't have Christians. It's, it, it, we don't have Christians by way of osmosis. Right? We don't just rub shoulders with people and voila, they become Christians. No. They need the word and they need the spirit. And we don't convert people through political power and influence. Again, the state is not responsible to disciple the nations. The state wields the sword. Listen to Paul. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. And here he's clarifying after he said against the rulers, because we can automatically think, you know, whoever the president is right now. No. Against the authorities. Not talking about worldly governments. Against the cosmic powers. That is the summarizing word. Summarizes what he is talking about before that. The cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is spiritual and we use spiritual weapons to fight it. Because the problem with unbelievers everywhere in high and low places is that they do not have the Holy Spirit. That's the problem. And so how, how do we solve that problem or seek to solve that problem? Through prayer. Their problem is that they do not know God. Not just their actions. Not just because they're making stupid choices. Right? It's because they don't know God. And they don't know his saving power. So how, to, how do we approach God's throne of grace? But Paul told us how. We pray for everyone. Pray for those in authority. Pray for those who are not in authority. So that, what? We would live peaceful and godly lives in Christ Jesus. So that they would leave us alone, right? So that we, we would have freedom and continue to live uh, out this freedom. Now, this doesn't mean, and he goes on to explain, this doesn't mean that Christianity is, is not in opposition to worldly doctrines like collectivism, and communism. We are at odds fundamentally with the views of tyrannical governments that have no regard for, for individual souls. Uh, these governments look at people based on groups, 
right? Instead of individuals. And they demand loyalty to these groups first and foremost instead of God. I'm not sure about how, how you all grew up in your families, but I grew up in a culture where if you move away from where we are, the group, right, where the group is, you're, you're looked at as a traitor. Because there's this collective culture, this collective mindset that stems from socialism, communism, that is ingrained in people's minds. And it's even embedded in the culture that if you leave for any reason, you move far away, you're a traitor, you're turning your back on us, you're not for the people. And then there are governments who believe this as well. And they instill this in your mind. They say, you know, forget the individual rights that people have. Let's look at them as groups. They need to be loyal to their group. That's tyranny. That's tyrannical. Christianity provides a refuge in the presence of God for the individual soul from these fluctuating currents of human opinion, especially as we see in communism and socialism. Christianity gives the individual soul courage to stand against the world. Was Athanasius, early church pastor, said Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, he wasn't afraid to write against the world, the collective group who was speaking up against Christianity, right? Christianity refuses to make an individual a mere means to an end, like we see in these tyrannical governments. A mere element in the building of society, right? If you're not doing something for the society or building a good community, or whatever you want to call it, then you're expendable, right? You're, you're not worth anything. You're not worth anything until you're doing something for society. That's how they view people, individuals. And you must be part of the group. If you're not part of groupthink, then you must be punished, right? We don't have minds on our, of our own. So we can't think through things. That's contra-Christianity, by the way. That is. Because Christianity is for the individual. Um, Christianity rejects the idea that men are saved in a mass or collective group. But we are saved individually. And we will all have to face God individually face to face. So Christianity, he's affirming, Christianity is individualistic, not social. Okay? It's not social. But, as we will see in the next chapter... Though Christianity is individualistic as to personal salvation, but that's not all it is. Christians are saved individually in order to be part of a group, a church where we have a common bond, a communion, a fellowship with the same personal God. So Christianity is social in that sense. We are all in a relationship with God and with one another. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. People often ask, what is, what is the point of all this? Why am I here? You're here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So here is the major difference between the true Christian church and the liberal church. The true Christian church 
teaches that man exists for the sake of God. The liberal church teaches in practice, if not in theory, that God exists for the sake of man, which eventually leads to the teaching that man exists for the sake of man. The problem exists not only only in the church, but he mentions also in the family. The family is getting pushed in the background more and more by, by the community and the state. He gets into school choice here, which is so relevant for today. Even in the 1920s, school choice was being limited and parents were losing their rights in parenting their children to the state or the local community. Now, we would never think that the local community would be involved in the breaking down of the family structure, but it can if we let it. This reality is growing more and more in how the lives of children are no longer surrounded by the loving atmosphere of the Christian home. But the utilitarianism, which means to use any means to meet a good end, that's what it means, so whatever means the state can use, to come with this good end, they'll say, it's for your good, right? That's, that's utilitarianism. We're doing this for your good. You don't know what's good. We need to tell you what's good, right? That's utilitarianism. And this is how they're taking away school choice. They're saying homeschool, the statistics are very bad for homeschool. They're not really that educated when they get to high school, uh, and graduate, or even you know private schools, they say they're okay, but they're they're teaching these uh, separatist teachings and private schools. No, public school is the best. Let's eliminate all these other options because it's for the children's good, right? He says the revival of the Christian religion would unquestionably bring a reversal of the process. The family, over against all other social institutions, would come its rights again. Again, you've got to understand what Machen is saying here. He is a libertarian. Okay. And he's a strong believer, he was a strong believer, of parents having a choice in school, right? This is not an argument for homeschool only, or you know, private school only, or Christian schools only. He's not arguing that. He's just saying that parents should have freedoms. And uh, right now, we're losing that. We're losing that as parents. We're losing that as a society uh, for the sake of utilitarianism. And then he also says this is not at all an argument against the state either. Christians ought to support the state. And I'll quote him again. And if anyone has ever suggested, uh, and I've heard this before, that Machen was a post-millennial, or that Machen was a theonomist, or he supported Christendom, or Christian government only, uh, as, you know, Christian government as, as being the only government we can obey, they need to read this quote. They need to deal with this quote. Because he says, the Christian support of the state, moreover, is independent of the Christian or non-Christian character of the state. So he is saying, we are to support the state even if it is non-Christian, even if it is completely 
pagan. He says, it was in the Roman Empire under Nero that Paul said, the powers that be are ordained of God. Christianity assumes no negative attitude, therefore, toward the state, but recognizes under existing conditions the necessity of government. He wasn't an anarchist, in other words. Again, he doesn't sound like a Christian nationalist here. And he didn't follow in the footsteps of many of the 17th century forefathers when it came to this. Again, remember, there was a split between American Presbyterians and Covenanters on this very point. They split after the Revolutionary War over this issue. And American Presbyterians would go on to find Princeton Seminary. Uh, Princeton Seminary, you had a lot of um, American Presbyterians teaching, uh, some Unionists, and Machen being maybe the sole Confederate, I I don't know if that's uh, 100% true throughout her history, but uh, he was, uh, uh, at the time he was there, and you know, he had problems with Warfield. Warfield was definitely on Lincoln's side of the war, so they butt heads, but anyway, um, what's important here is to know Machen's mindset, his background, what he stood for, because this would later shape the OPC. Many come into the OPC and they wonder, these guys are different, but I can't put my finger on it. Uh, Maybe because we subscribe to the 1789, not the 1647 of the Westminster Standards, where it changed the relation of the church and the state. The 1789 followed the Constitution, where the 1647 and 48 didn't. So at this time, Christians began to think differently. Others remained the same, sometimes caused some problems. While, while American Presbyterians went a different direction. That's why it was called the PCUSA. Okay? And that's why we would be called the uh, um, PCA at, at first, and then we changed to the o- OPC. But this had an effect on the way ministers in the OPC began to think about what the state is for and what it's not for. Okay? And that even if pagans are in power... We are to submit to the state so long as they're not causing us to sin against our God. Also, he is not calling or arguing from a complete withdrawal from society or from the battles of this world. He's not calling us, as I said last time, to become Amish. We're not to separate ourselves from the world. Our Lord himself lived in the midst of life's trials And he lived in the midst of societal problems. You think we have problems today? They had problems, right? You're talking Rome. Their government was completely debauched. We think ours is debauched now. But they were little boys who were forced to be castrated and marry certain emperors throughout her history. Okay? Complete child sex trafficking in front of them on a daily basis. They watched it. Here we're a little isolated from it. We know it happens, and it's awful. And Christians should be involved in 
authorities to, to try to stop it. We should be involved. But Jesus, imagine Jesus living in the midst of it. Watching it. Watching the debauched government of Rome. And not only that, the debauched leadership of the Jews. He didn't withdraw from society. And at this point, we are called to learn the principles of Jesus and apply them to the modern world we live in. At this point, we are in full agreement with the liberal. If we profess faith, we are to live as Christians in a fallen world. So the Christian man certainly should not display no lack of interest in applied Christianity, or we would be found to be hypocrites. But he is not at all speaking of the Christian Transform, uh, Christian transformation of culture and society. Uh, we don't need a separate category for everything. That, that's a form of withdrawal, right? That's a form of separating ourselves from the world. We don't need Christian sports. We don't need Christian politics and politicians. We don't, I would argue, need Christian music either, but that's a touchy subject, my opinion, okay? Um, we don't need all these categories to replace the worldly stuff we already have and that we already like. I ha- had to come to grips uh, uh, maybe a couple of years ago that I like hip-hop. Other, pe- other, other people don't. That's okay. But I didn't have to make it Christian for me to like it. Yeah, I, I say maybe that sounds a little much... I can skip to the next one. I mean, he is not trying to argue for a separate Christian category for everything. Now, in some things we should, like Christian institutions of higher learning, we should support those institutions. But to make a separate category for Christian sports, come on. Would that even take off is the question. Do we have that kind of backing to do that, right? And you've got to ask, you need all the Christian players to leave the NFL and go, go into a, uh, another uh, league. But instead, as Christians, we ought to think differently in the way we engage with these worldly categories. Right? We ought to think differently when we are playing sports. We ought to think differently when we are engaged in politics. We're not here to overthrow the government, to make it specifically Christian. When has that worked? Really hasn't. Because of the difficulty. Why? Because there are people involved. If you have people involved in anything, it's going to eventually fall apart. Right? That is not our role. And for that, you know, to just randomly overthrow a government, I would resist that as a Christian at all costs. But if I am a politician, as a Christian, I'm going to think differently. I'm going to think differently about my role and my duties seeking to uphold the Constitution so long as it is honoring to God. When I play sports, sportsmanship is a Christian principle. So when I score a touchdown, not that I could ever score a touchdown, I think I'm too small for that, or if I hit a home run, not that I could do that either, I was awful at baseball. 
But I'm not going to be all braggadocious, right? I'm not going to be in your face saying, ha, ha, you know, this is what you get, right? It's, there's, sports, there's a place for sportsmanship. And that's what uh, the Christian should do in that situation. So, so that is applied Christianity, which is, which is not at all trying to make separate categories. Because those categories, sports, politics, music, they're not sinful in themselves. Right? I think Martin Luther argued for that. This is why, you know, Martin Luther used to play all sorts of music with different topics. Even bar music. <clears throat> That's a, another topic for an, another day. It is a part of nature. When we became Christians, we didn't say, I no longer like football because I'm a Christian. No, that's, that's ridiculous because football in itself is not against Christianity. Now, if football takes you away from the worship of God, that's a different story. Grace doesn't destroy nature, but it perfects nature. So how we approach these different topics, if we're going to be engaged in politics, if we're going to be engaged in football or any type of sport, basketball, we live by the principles of Jesus. We apply it because we say he is our Lord. So if anyone would ever ask you, why is it that you're different? You'd say it's because of my Lord and Savior. But... For the principles of Jesus to be applied, the man who applies the principle must be a Christian. And that's the point he is making here. There must be a new birth. How can you apply Christianity to society or to the culture if there's no Christianity? If no one's born again. The people applying Christianity must be Christians. If they have never received the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will really be no real change in anything. But the liberal thinks differently about this. It's interesting to know how this was a liberal tendency in his day, but it's it's a conservative one today. He says the liberal believes that applied Christianity is all there is of Christianity. Christianity being merely a way of life. The Christian man believes that applied Christianity is the result of an initial act of God. So there is a big difference between the Christian and the liberal in the way we think of human institutions. The Christian man is pessimistic unless the institutions be manned by Christian men. And even that, I am pessimistic uh, because men are involved. While the modern liberal is optimistic about these institutions, he believes that human nature as it is can be molded by the principles of Jesus. This is the liberal. While the Christian man believes that evil will only be held in check and not destroyed by human institutions. There's the distinction here. What's the role of human institutions? And what is the role of the church? That is what he's trying to make a distinction here. There must be a transformation of the man. I don't plan these things. Again, you heard that this morning, that the gospel transforms man. 
before there can be any true lasting change in the institutions. He's pretty much asking, how can you make any institution Christian without any Christians? How can you make a society Christian without any Christians? And this is seen everywhere. And this, it's important to know the distinction. Human institutions are only here to serve an end that is to kind of um, restrain evil. That's all human institutions can do. Human institutions can only restrain, right? This is why we have prisons. This is why we have the state. This is why we have uh, certain uh, mental hospitals for those who, who need it. This is why we have counselors and Just name all the institutions. He is not at all saying we need to get rid of human institutions. No, we need human institutions. And we need Christians to be a part of those human institutions. But their role is only to restrain evil. Christianity and the message of the gospel removes evil. Human institutions cannot remove evil. No matter how much they try. Even prison, right? You imprison someone for so long, they're back out on the streets, they're doing the same thing they did before. It's like a vicious cycle over and over again. They cannot remove the evil. They can only restrain the evil. And this is what he is saying. Christianity, the purpose of the gospel, is that we preach it so that the evil in men's hearts would slowly be removed. And this happens over the course of someone's life and the end would be glorification. But there in the initial change, there is a change in the person where the thief no longer steals, right? Because the gospel has transformed his heart. And this is why both the institution and the church must stay in her lane. What the institutions are for They stay in their lane. And what the church is for, we stay in ours. Sometimes we overlap. If I notice someone is dealing with more of a a, a mental illness rather than a spiritual problem. Not everything physical is spiritual, okay? I know there are people who argue that. That's not true. Not everything physical can be fixed by spiritual answers. Again, that's health and wellness Prosperity gospel. I don't know if people made that connection. This thinking, and I say this because this thinking affects reformed Christians. I've heard reformed Christians say mental illness is just demons playing tricks on you. All you need to do is pray, read your scripture, and the mental illness will be gone. No. That's not how it works. Oftentimes mental illness is a physical problem and needs medication, and other forms of worldly counsel. And when I see that in anyone, I'll say, maybe you need to seek help from this person who specializes in that. If it's sin, I'll point that out. But the rest of it, they may need some other kind of counseling. So each institution stays in her lane. And whenever we get the two confused, it always leads to problems. And I'll end with this one quote 
from Machen, he says this, the missionary of liberalism seeks to spread the blessings of Christian civilization, whatever that may be, and is not particularly interested in leading individuals to relinquish their pagan beliefs. But the true Christian missionary is primarily concerned with the salvation of souls, that we are not saved by the mere ethical principles of Jesus, but by his redemptive work. So the Christian, unlike the liberal, says to all men everywhere, human goodness will avail nothing for lost souls. Ye must be born again. Again, human institutions are needed to restrain evil so we don't have a society that's crumbling, but human institutions cannot remove evil. It's only by the grace of God and through his gospel, only by the work of the Holy Spirit. 